John chapter 17. There was a man, there's been said of a man living in Germany around the 17th century uh, who said he would, he dared not preach on John 17. Well, I couldn't differ or strongly, more strongly agree or disagree with this man's opinion. Uh, Jesus spoke this prayer out loud on a, on purpose uh, for all to hear. And through inspiration, we have the prayer for us today also to read and to preach from and to, and to, to, um, to be strengthened by it all the way here in 2021. Uh, and so for the past two years, as I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, it has been a long time. Uh, I have been looking forward to this time where we can finally go to John chapter 17. I've been looking forward with great expectation. And so today our journey begins. And I don't know where to start. I've had two years to think about it, and I don't know where to start. Next Sunday's Mother's Day, and then the following Sunday after that, Cheryl and I will be going down to Georgia to see, uh, let me correct that, to feel our granddaughter kick. <laughs> so we will, we will be down there. Uh, so that's two weekends that I'll be gone here. Um, and so nonetheless, so today I'm only going to introduce, I'll only be introducing uh, this, this, this chapter that's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus to you this morning. Um, and so I, I want to place this whole prayer before us this morning in its totality. I, I didn't inform Keith of this, um, but I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to take the time to do that because it's such a, such a wonderful prayer uh, that I want to try to read it well before you this morning so maybe you can just uh, kind of listen in as I do that however you want to do that, maybe close your eyes or whatever you want to do, but um, I'm only going to focus on the first verse today, be, uh, John chapter 17, verse 1, but I want to begin by reading the complete chapter, and God's inerrant inspired word reads, and Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their, half, on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. Yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. I came to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. 
I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Father, I would ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. Lord, the, the moment is not lost on me. The, how do you pray after reading your prayer? And so, Father, we would ask that you would illuminate our hearts and mind by the power of your Holy Spirit as we spend some time reflecting upon uh, the Lord's Prayer, your prayer that you prayed to your Father. I ask your blessing, Lord, this morning as we continue reviewing, introducing this prayer here this morning. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It has been said that John 17 is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth, followed, following the greatest sermon ever preached on earth. The great preacher John Knox, known as the trumpeter of Scotland and also the leader of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, during his last days on earth, realizing that his time was coming to the end, the end of his life, he asked his wife if she would bring the Bible and read the Lord's Prayer, this prayer to him. And it was actually as she was reading this wonderful prayer of Jesus that he passed from this life into eternity. So using verse 1 as our introduction, I'm going to walk through verse 1 phrase by phrase and just introducing the whole prayer to you this morning. Um, and I do hope that it will be meaningful for you. But we're going to start right from the beginning. The first two phrases are the only phrases, the only words of this whole prayer that are not actually those that were spoken by Jesus. 
And John, as he's recording this prayer here for us, he just wrote simply, Jesus spoke these things. Jesus spoke these things. Jesus now brings to a close what I've been saying for some time, and that is he brings to a close uh, the past few chapters. He closes his instructions that he's been giving. And he only has one thing left to do. And that is lifting his eyes, lifting his eyes to the Father. Lifting his eyes to the Father, Jesus prays. Jesus often went out alone to pray. And we do not have record of these prayers. These were not for the ears of the disciples, but for the eyes of the disciples. Jesus demonstrated a pattern of prayer. In the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, we have a very similar pattern of Jesus lifting His eyes to heaven. Remember before He prayed, before calling Lazarus forth from the grave. And as He prayed, and in that prayer, uh, which was considerably shorter, but it was spoken out loud for the disciples to hear and also to record. Jesus gives His reason for the prayer, and it is for the benefit of those who hear the prayer. And so too today, we must assume that Jesus does the same in this prayer here, before us here this morning. It is to be heard, and it is to be recorded, and it was recorded for the benefit of the original hearers, of course, and for all those down through the ages who have continued to read this prayer, including us here today in 2021. And so we want to take just a moment and say, well, what are we to learn? If Jesus purposefully spoke this prayer out loud for those who there were, were there to hear, and by, the, by inspiration recorded for us today, what are some of the things that we are to learn? Well, many things that we are to learn from this prayer, of course, and we'll, we'll cover them over the course of the next few weeks. But I, I just want to put two as a way of introduction before you here this morning. First, I want you to notice that Jesus lifted His eyes to heaven as a prayer, as a model, as a posture. The psalmist writes in Psalm 123, 1, To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And also in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, verses that are quite familiar to us, I'm sure, where the psalmist writes, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord. My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven in earth. Those who stood by certainly understood the significance of this posture of prayer. Help does come from above. This is said to be the dwelling place of God. Jesus reaching out beyond Himself, recognizing the God of all power, of all presence, and of all knowledge. A God who does not sleep, but is ever watching and ever waiting for moments just like this. Just like this when we too come before the Father in prayer. So I believe that's one application uh, that we can take away from or with this this morning. And the, the second would be this. That Jesus does not pray to the gods of the mountains. Jesus does not pray to the, the gods of the heavens. Jesus prays to His Father, to the Father, as He says in verse 3, to the one and only one true God. 
And when the disciples came to Jesus and they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Simply they seen Jesus modeling day after day his, um, his discipline of going off and praying. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And it's what we call the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the disciples' prayer. But Jesus said this, he said, our Father who is in heaven. That's how he taught them to start out their prayer. Now, while I do think it's appropriate to pray to all members of the Trinity, Jesus taught, modeled, and spoke of praying to the Father in Jesus' name. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says this, that the Spirit helps us in our prayers, intercedes on our behalf. This is the Holy Trinity. All members of the Trinity are involved and engaged when we pray. Think about that. All members of the Trinity are engaged and involved when we as God's children pray. And so now let us turn to the actual words of Jesus in this prayer. And Jesus starts out with, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is now Jesus' final reference to His hour coming. He spoke often about His hour coming. About eight times actually through the Gospel of John. And Jesus has referenced an hour is coming for His mission and for His purpose to take place. And this purpose is now going to be fully realized here within the next few hours of Jesus' life. The first time Jesus spoke these words, an hour is coming, was in John chapter 2, verse 4. Remember, it was in Cana, the wedding that was there, the first of the many signs that Jesus had done. And it was in reference to turning water into wine. Remember the story, right? When they went to a wedding and they ran out of wine. And the mother of Jesus, Mary, came to Jesus and said, Son, uh, uh, could you turn or would you turn? Uh, We're out of wine. And Jesus has this to say. What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. When Jesus turned water into wine, which He eventually did do, it was a symbolism of the beginning of the end of the old order of Judaism and the beginning of the messianic age that was now being ushered in. Paul would later reference this time of the old to the new. When speaking of the being born anew or being born again in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And if you recall when Jesus, uh, just a few chapters ago, had ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Jesus said this in John chapter 12. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to a life eternal. And this is now the time, this is now the hour that has come. And like a grain of wheat, Jesus will fall into the earth and die. If we want eternal life, we too must fall into the earth like that grain of wheat and die. And so obviously I have to ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you surrendered and completely given up your life 
as that grain of wheat, fallen to the ground and died. Have you denied self? Have you died to self? New life, eternal life is only available. It only comes through the process of dying to self. Listen, we have such a strong DNA. And I get it, right? Because we are created in the image of God. We have such a strong DNA that it was it's put into us by our Creator, the, the survival skills, right? The desire to live, the desire to battle, the desire to look out for self. Each and every one of us has it within us. And it is so hard for that man or woman to die to self. But as Jesus has modeled here, we must. It is the only, only way. And so here now, we, we see the moment of truth comes for Jesus, right? I mean, will Jesus actually, not, will Jesus save Himself? Will He die for us to save us? Or will He save Himself? Now, I know we don't often think of it in those types of terms, but we must understand that Jesus was 100% human and 100% deity. Jesus had the same wrestle, wrestlings that, that we ourselves have. I mean, don't think that it would have been, was an easy moment and an easy time here for Jesus. It can be easy for us at times to think of this event and to just almost in a flippant way to say, uh, uh, Jesus died, Jesus died for my sins, right? And, and, and as well we should say, because for those who are actual followers of Jesus, Jesus did indeed die for our, our sins. But sometimes I'm afraid we consider it or we make it an event, <clears throat> a birthday. And I know that's very callous and casual, and I don't mean to be that callous and casual about it. But, but we think of it as a birthday, as an anniversary. We think of it as Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day. We look at one of these events that comes along in our life, and this was not just one of those events. It can be so easy to become calloused about it. But let us not become calloused about the truth of this hour. Jesus said in chapter 12 of John, verse 27, he said, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it's for this hour that I have come. You can hear, right? You can hear the rustlings within Jesus. We can hear the battle that was within Jesus. And make no mistake about it, it was a battle. The very ruler of this world was mounting an all-out assault on the humanity of Jesus. This was no walk in the park. This was not an easy assignment. It is easy to think all of this was just an event. But no, not the case at all. This was an all-out attack from all the forces that hell could muster. This was like dropping all the atomic bombs at one time. As you think about the most evil humanity can create or, or, or put on another evil human being. Just think about all the atomic bombs at one time just, just dropping. This was the attack that Jesus was under. This was the fight to the death. A fight for power. A fight for control. This was a fight for the life of a system. Either a system of good or a system of evil. This was a fight that had been building since before the foundation of the world. This was a battle of cosmic epic proportion. Matthew records a, a prayer in his final hours here of Jesus that John does not record for us. After this particular prayer, 
Uh, Jesus and the disciples, as we'll see, they crossed over uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And John, in him recording this account for us, he goes directly into the arrest of Jesus. But Matthew records one more significant prayer before, before that arrest. And this prayer of Jesus is a very personal, it's a very emotional, it is a very gut-wrenching prayer from the Son to the Father. And I do want to read it before you and put it before you also here this morning by reading it. It is in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Again, as we think of, of introduction to this high priestly, to the prayer of Jesus here. In Matthew chapter 26, verse, starting at verse 36. And then Jesus came to the place called Gethsemane and to His disciples. He said, sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And he came to his disciples again and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for his eyes were heavy. Their eyes were heavy, and he, he left them again saying, and, and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, for the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the betrayer is at, at hand. And Jesus began here. He said that I am grieved. I am, dis- I am in- under lots of stress. Greed is just simply that. We know what it means. It's very sorrowful. We know what the distress means. It's very anxious. And Jesus is saying, I am very sorrowful. I am very anxious here this morning. And like emotional stress and events in our own life, as time draws closer to cl- and closer, the anxiety builds can become all-consuming focus and maybe build up within our minds larger than it actually is. But not so with the omniscient Jesus. Jesus understood. He was full, fully, uh, he had full knowledge of the journey that was ahead of him. And in verse 38 of, of Matthew here, Jesus says he's not only grieved, but he is deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. So grieved, he says, to the point of death. Now, we might at times have said it ourselves, or we might hear other people say it at times, that I could just die. Right? I mean, we say it in a way, well, are we actually meaning that? No, of course we're not. Not necessarily. I hope not. I don't think so. 
But I do believe that Jesus actually meant those things here. You know, I was reminded, again, um, mom's on my mind. I don't necessarily know why, but I was reminded about her uh, again reading this and studying for this, where she would often say as she, she faced these times of distress and anxiety, and she did have many of them, uh, and she would say, oh, I would just rather have a buckle full of schlake. Now, Cheryl is probably the only one who hears that, understands that. But she said, I would, and just to translate it word for word directly into English, I would rather have a back full of whipping. That's what she would say than to go through what she was, whatever that was. And as a little youngster who, who really liked my mom, I just couldn't quite understand. How could I lift this grief, this distress, this anxiety from her? And obviously, uh, I'm trying to make a human comparison to, to what Jesus Himself is experiencing here. And He says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Father, if it is possible, let this cup... Now, now we, know, we understand by what this cup is, right? We understand it's the, it's, it's, it's the trial. It's going, to, it's going to be the abuse, the ultimate crucifixion that Jesus is going to face. It is this cup that Jesus is saying, Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And here we do see the humanity of Jesus. Here we see the battle that is intensifying. We hear the grief and the distress of Jesus as He pours out His heart to the Father. We also see uh, in Jesus that He has indeed, as a grain of wheat, fallen into the earth and is in the process of dying when he says yet not my will but yours be done can we pray that prayer can we pray that prayer that, that, that's a difficult prayer to say is it not as we come to the father in the midst of some of our own distresses in the midst of our own some of our own anxieties in the midst of our own troubles maybe family well i don't have to list any there you you, you can think of them on your own but can we take those to the Father which we are asked to do and modeled to do and commanded to do, I might add. But can we then close with that? Yet, Father, not my will be done, but Yours be done. At His arrest of Jesus there in verse 30 and 53 of Matthew, Jesus says, do you not think? As He's telling the whole, the whole uh, army that came to arrest Him, He says, do you not think? that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. 12,000 angels could be here at my disposal if I reached out to the Father. I can just imagine the Father looking down at His Son as again, I try to bring my humanity into this. I can just imagine the Father looking down at the Son, cheering Him on. Right? Come on, son. You can do it. Don't give up. You're almost there. Is that, is, that, is that reading too much into the text? I don't know that it is. And yet on the other hand, having the heart of a father, all the son would have to do was appeal to his father as he himself has said. And in a blink of an eye, the father's hand would reach down and pull his son out of the hell he was going through. Okay, can you feel it in this prayer? Can you see it? Do you understand the importance of this hour? Do you understand? Can you feel it? 
Come back here to, to Matthew chapter 26 for just for a moment. When Jesus said, Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. Jesus was totally, completely surrendered to the Father. This was not an easy journey. An easy journey for Jesus to take. Listen, we cannot minimize this hour. We can't cheapen this hour. We can't soften this hour. The hour did not come. Jesus did not come to this hour just in case someone may be interested in eternal life. Jesus came to this hour on purpose, for a purpose. Jesus conquered this hour for exactly those who verse 3 tells us or verse 2 tells us that the Father gave to the Son. Jesus came on purpose and for a purpose. We must we must understand that Jesus spoke these things, it says, lifting his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come for what? Glorify your son. The hour has come. Glorify your son. Jesus, living life as a man, calls upon his father to strengthen him, to enable him to show proof to the fact that He is indeed the Son of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, speaking of the perfect high priest, speaking of referencing Jesus in the line of Melchizedek there, the author of Hebrews writes this, says, In the days of Jesus' flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the One, to God, who is able to save Him from death. And He was heard he was heard because of his piety. He was heard because of his faithfulness. He was, heard, he, he, he was heard because of his surrenderedness, if I can make up a word such as that. See, Jesus realized that what he was about to do, this was no surprise for Jesus. Jesus clearly understood this hour and realized that the moment was coming when the weight of the sins of the world would be placed upon him. The staggering load of the guilt of the world would be placed on Him by the Father. The thought. The thought was overwhelming. Would His human nature hold? Would it break? Could He stand the load? Could He stand the thought of losing sight of His Father when His Father would turn His back on Him? This is why Jesus lifted his eyes to the Father. He said, Father, strengthen me. Keep me. Prove to the world that I am your Son. Glorify your Son in this hour. And again, as we think of maybe a response that the Father would have. Well, why? Why, Son? Why, why, should, I, why should I do that? Jesus says that the Son may glorify you. That the Son may glorify you. Jesus' one great desire throughout His life here on earth was to glorify His Father. Jesus was obedient to the Father to glorify the Father. Sometimes we think that Jesus came to die for our sins and Jesus did indeed come to die for our sins. But first and foremost, before that ever event was ever agreed upon, Jesus came to earth 
to glorify His Father. We must. We must understand understand what is taking place, place here. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And in John chapter 8, verse 40, 54, Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. At the beginning of the upper room discourse, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And just to pick up a few verses later of Hebrews chapter 5, there of the, of the great high priest, the author continues and said, although He was a Son, although Jesus was a Son, He learned obedience. How? From the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal life. I want to read John chapter 17, the next two verses here for you. And it says, Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. And Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, His Son whom you have, have sent. That, Jesus says, is eternal life. Listen. Listen again as I try to toggle back and forth here just a little bit. The most or the only unforgivable sin on all humanity is to deny Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So many times, people want to fixate upon a particular sin. Have I committed blaspheming? Have I done something? Have I lived a certain way that God can no longer forgive? And that would be absolutely no. Every single sin is forgivable except denying Jesus as the Christ. Because there is salvation in no one else than in Jesus. But... The root, the root of all sin is that we do not glorify God. That is the root of all sin. Not in our actions, not in the things. That's a byproduct of not glorifying God. But the root of all sin is failing to glorify God. That, that, that is why good and moral people do not see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. I'm a good person. I don't do this, 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 and this, and this. Set by society, what society defines as a good person, they don't understand that the essence of sin is that we, that they do not glorify God. Listen, we often will sometimes hear people say something like, oh, I've seen the writing on the wall. It comes from Daniel chapter 5, right? <laughs> and we know how that worked out. Not so well. But why didn't it work out so well? Why didn't it work out so well? I, I, I want to, to, to um, remind you of those words. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 22, when Daniel came to Belshazzar to say, hey, what does this writing on the wall say? He says, you son of Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You knew all about your father and what he went through, Nebuchadnezzar, what he went through, and how he humbled himself, or God humbled him, and he turned to God. And you've seen all that as his son. Even though you've seen it all, you failed it. But you have failed, but you have exalted yourself, 
against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels out of the house of God before you. And your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood, of stone, which do not see, they do not hear, they do not understand. But, Daniel says, the God in whose hands your very life breath is all your ways you have not glorified. Listen, the, the great sin of, Bel, of Belshazzar was not defiling the instruments from the temple. It was failing to glorify God. And instead of glorifying God, they worship gold, silver, wood, stone. Things that don't see. Things that don't understand. Things that don't know. And you might say, well, I don't have any gold statues in my house. I don't have any relics. I don't have any trinkets that I worship. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. That's nothing more than materialism, is it not? We put such great value in the things that we have in our retirement accounts, in our houses, in all the stuff that we have. And in that very way, we're upholding those things Honoring and glorifying those things before total surrendering to God and glorifying God. God asks of us many things. doesn't ask the same things from each and every one of us. But sometimes God asks hard things for us. And a person may choose to not glorify God. Not consciously looking at the material things that we have that hold us back, that, that put us in bondage. But in those same ways, we're no different than this guy here out of the Old Testament so many years ago by worshiping stuff and not glorifying God. In Philippians chapter 2, just to bring this introduction here to a close, in Philippians chapter 2, we know it right as the Christ hymn, but again as we think about what's called the high priestly prayer. It's really the Lord's prayer. So if you hear me say the Lord's prayer, that's what I'm talking about. But as we think about Jesus here, His hour now coming. And again, we get to see all these events on this side of the cross after they've been taken place. But, but Paul here writes to the church at Philippi. And he says, this is the attitude that we're supposed to have in ourselves, the one that was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, under the heaven, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Listen, all of our life, all of our life, our whole mission must also be that of Jesus. And that everything we do, that our greatest desire for the days, the time we have left, to bring glory to God the Father. And as we take the next few weeks and work through this high priestly prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that is one thing we will always have before us as we go through here. The whole mission, the whole purpose. Sometimes we don't like where the text takes us, but the whole purpose, the whole mission is to glorify and honor God. We will do that in this life or the next. God 
will be glorified. Father, I pray uh, this morning as we um, once again think about um, your life, your mission, your purpose. Father, help us not to be callous, hard about what you went through, but may it soften our hearts. May it bring a desire within us to follow that example that you have left us. Father, I find it very difficult to surrender myself. Father, I am a man who likes to be in control, and that is not compatible with glorifying you. Father, every single one of us this morning, as we come before you, Father, help us to lay down our life. Help us to surrender our life. Help us to die to self, because it's in dying that we truly live. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.